This audio production is presented by Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church in Ocala, Florida. For more resources, visit us online at gspcocala.com. This morning's sermon passage is from the letter of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. O foolish Galatians, who, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. May his word give us life. Thank you, Nikki. I'm a little out of practice. I missed a week. Uh, Barry, thank you so much uh, for stepping up and preaching last week. Uh, Thank you all to everyone who said thank you for me not being here. Uh, Let's see how a week off does, though. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, uh, we need your word to give us life. Uh, Our hearts are so quick to run after and recreate other things to worship, other ways that we might show ourselves worthy. Uh, God, by the power of your word, uh, chase out all of that darkness. Instead, shine the light of your gospel. Uh, Show us what ridiculous fools we are to go after anything else. And show us the beauty of your grace for foolish people like us. Uh, Father, uh, get me out of your way uh, so that we all, myself included, might feast on your word now. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Paul, again, uh, if we were just reading Galatians all the way through like they would have when they received it at these churches, Uh, we would only be about 10 minutes into the speech 
right? As Paul is most likely dictating this letter, he has not had time to settle down from what he started out with, where he said he was astonished that they had so quickly abandoned the gospel. And as he has been telling his story and grounding his theology, he is back to, you foolish people. I'll remind you that Jesus said that to call someone a fool, raka, is to sin. And so Paul must be on firm ground to be able to say we're being foolish. Right? This is uh, that incredibly challenging spot of rebuke and correction that is righteous and good and terrifying and loving and kind and redemptive. Right? What Paul does when he is stepping into this passage uh, is uh, some of the most, if you will, violent gospel words that we have in Scripture. And he is offering them not as a bull in a china shop, not as somebody blustering, trying to show authority and power. He is offering them as a weeping father, looking at his children as they run away from life and into death. And so he says, you foolish, foolish Galatians. They're not light words. And perhaps the hardest part about them, right, when I hear these words and I know that the heart of the Father coming to us from them, I'm immediately convicted of how I speak to my own children, of how rarely I lovingly rebuke and how often my rebuke is tainted by anger. And yet that's not the point. Right, God did not put this in his scripture for all eternity simply so that fathers and mothers would be convicted for how their anger is not like Paul's. God, in his wisdom and kindness, knew that thousands of years after the Galatians needed to be told they were foolish, that the church would still need to hear it. That you and I in this room today are the recipients of this word properly. That we are foolish. That we, by nature, foolishly abandon the grace of God. Prone to wonder. That is where Paul begins to invite us to see our foolishness. And he says, who has bewitched you? The words there, people debate is, is he speaking in hyperbole? Hyperbole, right? That's a fun way to say it. Uh, is, is he just saying, you know, you must, be, you must be bewitched. And then others would say, the only way you would abandon the gospel is if it was Satan at work in your heart. The reality is, yes. Yes. Paul may be saying, you, the only way you would abandon such an offer of gospel grace to go and try and prove yourself by your works of the law would be because you have lost your mind or 
your mind has been taken over by an enemy. So he says, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's not so much trying to tell you, hey, you remember we did that play where we reenacted the crucifixion? That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that you have clearly seen and heard the gospel. Right? The crucifixion of Christ. When we talked about the letter to the Corinthians... Paul constantly was going back, not to Christ the risen Savior, but Christ the crucified, recognizing that the cross and at the cross is where we most clearly see the truth of the gospel, where we most clearly see both our great need and his great grace. Paul says, you are so foolish because you, you have fully seen The full truth of the gospel, not just that Christ died, but why he died. Your great need of that death, that it should be you on that cross. And you saw clearly it was his grace and his mercy that sent him there. You saw it. You knew it. You believed it. And he says, verse 2, let me ask you only this. Which, kids, you know this, right? When your parent says, I've got one question, you know there's more than one coming. (laughs) Just tell me one thing. What you mean is tell me everything, right? Paul says, let me ask you only this, and then has five questions. Now, if Paul were here, he would say, it's just one question. It just took me five to get around to it. They're all the same question. They're at the root, but sometimes when we get going, we just need to keep all the way through, right? He says, let me ask you only this. Now, what I want you to see here is that when Paul starts this this interrogation of our hearts, uh, of the foolishness of our hearts, he is going to go through the entirety of the walk of a Christian. Right? We, We talked in Galatians 2 about justification by faith alone, that that is the entry point into the gospel. What Paul is going to do here is not just say it's entry point, but he's going to talk about it is the every step of the Christian life. So he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says, was it that you came justified, that you received the Spirit, you were welcomed into the family of God because either A, you earned it. You did what was required to receive the gift of the Spirit to be part of God's family. Or B, that you believed. You heard the gospel and believed. He said, which one was it? Now, he has just said, right? Again, if we were listening to this, it would have been the last thing out of his mouth was, you were justified by faith, not by works, right? He's very clearly articulating it uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 16, right at the end. By works of the law, no one will be justified. So he's saying, I've already told you the answer here, guys, right? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing, right? So he's saying, all right, so you... You foolish Galatians have heard the gospel, believed in grace, and now you're running after this idea that you've got to do works to maintain it. You've got to work and do the works of the Old Testament law so that you might be maintained and redeemed and saved continually. 
He says, is that the way you came in? Did you come in by work or by grace? The answer is, of course, by grace. And he has to interrupt himself. Are you so foolish? Right? Parents, can you hear yourself giving this speech at some point in time? You did what? He says, are you so foolish? After having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says, okay, so you were justified. That single moment where God declared you righteous, that was a gift of grace, right? If we all agree that the only reason you were justified and saved was because God was first gracious, are you then going to really live tomorrow morning as though, yes, it was by grace then, but now it must be by my works, my flesh, right? Justification by faith. Are you arguing that it's sanctification by works? Some of you are like, uh, aren't we? Aren't we, like, aren't we supposed to make ourselves holy and do works so that, so that we're sustained, so that we're sanctified? The guys who put together uh, our Westminster Confession of Faith were brilliant. When it came to sanctification, I want you to hear what these stodgy 17th century people who are called divines, right? Do you think they ever made a joke, right? Do you think that they probably, if you saw them, you would think that is, like they are so committed to legalism and following the law. These men spent 10 years to put up a book where they argued over every little word. Don't you think they would believe that sanctification is by a little bit of elbow grease? Listen to what they say. They who are once effectually called and regenerated Christians, having a new heart and a new spirit created them, are further sanctified. So they said, all right, justified because of God. They are further sanctified really and personally. How? Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Now they keep going. They say, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. They do not say, because they're teaching what scripture says. They do not say, they who are then justified by faith are then sanctified by working alongside Jesus and really getting it right. Because with a little bit of help, you can get there too. They say, it is only by the work of Christ's death and resurrection, that you are made holy, that you are sanctified. It is not by your pulling up yourself by your bootstraps, works of the flesh, trying harder tomorrow, right? Some of us look at the cross of Jesus and are so moved by his death, we think the right response is to run up there with him and say, I'm with you, buddy. I'm going to die too, as opposed to fall down before it and say thank you. Not just to come in, but every day. It is how holiness is produced in us. 
Not by my work, not by my striving. And again, Paul is just questioning, saying, have you begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, right? So he's taken us from moment of salvation, justification. He's taken us from entry point into the Christian life to how we are sanctified. Now he's talking about daily life. God is at work. He is at work and he, right, some of us really just kind of bristle at this. The one who is at work doing miracles among you. And we're like, well, miracles. Let's talk about, is, you know, is God really doing that? I get frustrated with myself sometimes, okay? The fact that you walked in here and will open your ears and your heart to the gospel is the greatest miracle you will ever see in your life. He says, is it the one who supplies the Spirit to you and is working miracles among you? Is he doing it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What he's combating here is this idea of Christian karma. He says, God is graciously at work in your midst. Do you think he is doing that because you had a quiet time today and earned it? Do you think God's blessing is falling down on you because you obeyed nine out of the ten commandments for the first five minutes of your day and you earned it? Do you think that God was kind to you today because you tried harder not to sin? Or do you believe that it is all of his absolute 100% wholehearted grace and mercy toward you? It's a stark contrast It is not a both and. Our hearts want to go into, yeah, but I, you know, I. Paul says, having begun in grace, do you dare want to go back to living under law? And then he he brings in Abraham, which again, in the context of Galatia, part of the whole argument is not, uh, it's not a bunch of Gentiles sitting around having a Gentile conversation. It is people wrestling with the Hebrew way, wrestling with the Old Testament law and the demands of the Jewish life versus the demands of the Gentile life now as converts. And there are people coming in saying, you must behave like a Jew if you want to be a Christian. And so Paul says, well, let's talk about being Jewish. Who can we take down off, this, off the pedestal? Let's go for Abraham, the father of all. He says, you want to talk about living by faith and not by works. He says, verse 6, just as Abraham, quoting Genesis, believed God and it was counted to him righteous. Paul is saying, by by claiming Abraham here from Genesis chapter 15, he is saying, this is not something new for Gentile believers. This is not something new 
that we've finally gotten to the point where we get to be justified by faith and not by works. He goes all the way back to Abraham and says, this is the way it's been all along. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time with Abraham, okay? Because when Paul says, you foolish Galatians, Abraham would have been included in that kind of stuff. When you look at the life of Abraham, Right. If you turn to Hebrews 11, don't do it right now, you'll see Abraham taking up verse after verse after verse as an exemplar of faith. And our tendency is to say, man, I hope I can have the faith like Abraham. I want to be strong. I want to be able to get it done like Abraham did. Then I'll be accepted. Then I'll be approved. If you go all the way back to Genesis 11, You can turn there if you want to. Genesis 11, we meet a pagan, an idol worshiper named Abram, who, if you will, as all good idol-worshiping pagans, hated God because to worship idols is to hate God. And the God of all grace and mercy reached down and spoke to him. And he said... In Genesis 12, I'm going to bless you. In fact, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. You who have no children, you who are old and have no chance of having children, I am going to fill the world with your offspring, and they will be a blessing and live under my blessing. Now, do you think he earned that? Do you? No. Okay, all right. I want to lay this down pretty hard, okay? Because we're going to keep going. Because after 12, when God says to pagan idol-worshiping Abram, I have chosen you, Abram then in 13 takes a trip to Egypt where righteous Abram says to Pharaoh, hey, this wife of mine is my sister. You can have her. Guys, it's Valentine's Day. (laughs) This is not righteousness. So we go 14. He rescues Lot. And in 15, it starts by, by God speaking to him and saying, I am going to fulfill my promise. And Abram's faithful response is, yeah, how are you going to do that? And God says, I want you to look at the stars. And this is where Paul quotes from. God says, look at the stars. I'm going to keep my word. And Abraham worked really hard to really hold on to it. Abraham took God at his word. And God said, you are righteous because of that. I am counting you righteous. That's chapter 15. Chapter 16 Abraham's wife, Sarah, says, hey, God's promise isn't really going to work the way you think. Here's my slave. Let her be yours tonight, guys. Not righteousness. Chapter 17, God says, in fact, let me give you a sign of my promise. Here is the sign of circumcision because I will keep my gracious, favorable word to you. 
chapter 18, 19, Abraham pleads on behalf of Sodom. Chapter 20, if Egypt wasn't bad enough, Abram runs, at, runs again into another guy and he says, hey, Sarah, you remember that thing we did with Pharaoh? I think we're going to do that again. I don't know what your list of things that are bad is. And then, and then, chapter 21, the miracle that God had promised all the way back in 12 shows up in the name of Isaac. Now, do you think Abraham lived by works or by faith in a gracious God? And do you think God treats you any differently? Paul goes on in verse 7. Know then that those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. He says, because it was by faith that Abraham was counted righteous, it is only those who by faith trust in God that are sons of Abraham. You want to talk about these, these Judaizers who are coming into Galatians saying, you got to follow this rule, you got to follow that rule, you got to follow that rule. Those are not the people of Abram because they're not living by faith, they're living by works. He says, the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. I kind of want to go off on the scriptures for a second, but I'm going to pause there. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What you see here is Paul is saying, there are not works and some people who get saved by works, and there's grace and some people who get saved by grace. He says, God's people, the sons of Abraham, are those of grace by faith. And that, right, back to Genesis 12, that is the blessing that God has promised to give to all the nations, that he engages with them through grace. That is how we know who the people are, of God are. Now, the question has to be, then why is my heart so foolish? I'll give you 30 minutes. In 30 minutes, I guarantee you, my heart will be arguing works. Right? Barry, thank you again for preaching last week. It is so, like, it, this is some heart work to have to look at all this all week long. And then tell you guys what it looks like to believe the gospel and know my heart and how easily I go back to considering myself righteous if my works are in line instead of living by faith. What is it, right? What is it that moves my heart to be so foolish to abandon the God of all grace who loves to give grace where it is not deserved? That's why it's grace, right? I have to, that is, that is the language of my mind and heart that I have to say grace is not deserved. 
because I think somehow I got it. Somehow I earned grace. I am so, so confused. And yet my heart runs back to it. Day in and day out. We talked about this in our officer training. Right? We so easily forget. And yet God in his kindness has has given us words. Give us this day our daily bread. Like manna from heaven, the bread of life is laid before you day in and day out, and we can feast on it today. And like manna from heaven, if you don't feast on it today, it will rot by tomorrow. And you get to go back to it again and again, fresh and anew, and his gospel will come to you day in and day out. And yet, at the same time, I want to go away from it over and over again. And I'll tell you, If I dig into my own heart, and maybe you're in this black place too, one of the reasons I go back, one of the reasons I am a fool, is because I don't really want the freedom the gospel's offering. The freedom to tell you how bad I really am. The freedom to entrust my whole life, body, and soul to God to care for me instead of my perfect management of it. It doesn't sound as free as it should. The freedom to not be self-centered. The freedom of the gospel, right? When he says a blessing to the nations... Some of us don't want the freedom the gospel brings because it means we actually care about other people. And some days I really don't want to. Most days I really don't want to. So my heart says, ah. Take me back to the foolishness. The only problem with the foolishness is what Paul then goes on to say. He says, all who rely on works of law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, don't hear voodoo, mumbo, jumbo, ooh, a curse. Here, the promise is that if you want to rely on the law, there is a curse that sits above you that the moment you don't keep it, you're done. Now, some of us want to argue what it means to keep it and how I, you know, I really did a pretty good job. And while you have a standard of what you think keeping the law is, God is the one who made the law and gets to set the standard. So you can't come with your argument of, but I tried. Instead, he says, if you do not abide by it and do it in any and every way, you're cursed, you're dead. That is not, a little distinction, that is not anybody who does good things is cursed. It is those who what? Rely on it. Those who try and stand on it as their righteousness. Those who try and put one foot on that and one foot on grace and stand on that as their righteousness. It says, if you rely on it, you will be cursed. 
He also says it is evident, verse 11, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I want you to see what he's saying there. There's one line of argument that you and I are easy to go into that, yeah, okay, so nobody can keep the law. Of course, I'm not justified by the law because I can't keep the law. Yes, that is true. That is not what he is saying. He's saying the reason no one is justified by the law is not simply your inability to keep the law. The reason nobody is justified by the law is because that's not the path of justification. If you want to walk down the path of trying to be justified by the law, you will run into a sign that says dead end. That is not a path on which you can be just. The only path of justification is by grace through faith. There is no other. So he's not saying when he says... It's evident that no one is justified before, by, before God by the law. He's not saying because you people are just terrible. Yes, that's understood. But that's not the biggest inhibitor. The biggest inhibitor is that's not the way. The way is by grace. He says, verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So he says, when you take on this idea that, that I can do a little bit today, that I, I, with a little bit of more elbow grease, with a little bit more good deeds, I can sanctify myself. Right? It's not an either or. I'm sorry, it's not a both and. It's an either or. You can't trust in grace and try and add a little bit to it. It is either you are fully and wholly rolling yourself over onto God is the one who by grace not only saves but also sanctifies you, makes you holy and righteous and good. Or you're trying to do it yourself. Pardon me. He says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He says, this is your situation. If you, if you want to rely on the law, you are cursed. You are going down the wrong path and you have no hope. If you want to rely on it in the slightest, you have no hope yet. Christ has become that curse for you. He has stepped under it. He has taken on himself, becoming a curse for us as it is written. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is what Paul was getting at at the very beginning of these verses when he says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was betrayed, crucified. He says, you've already seen it. You know the gospel is of a crucified Savior who because you're not only inability to keep the law, but because you keep trying to rely on it, he has come to set you free from that by taking the curse onto himself. 
right? The foolishness of the Galatians, the foolishness of those at Good Shepherd is that we go to the law and we try and take it back. We try and take that curse back on ourselves. We try and live under the burden of, I'm gonna get better, God. I'm gonna work harder. I'm really gonna try this time. Or, you know, your grace is so good, I don't even have to care about it. And we take that curse on ourselves. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's mine. And because he did that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of being saved by faith through grace alone, might come to all the people, to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. A lot of times in sermons, it feels like there should be something moving that by the end I say, now go do this. I hope you know I'm not going there. The foolishness of our hearts is then to try and figure out, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Instead, the invitation of the gospel is to abandon relying on our works and instead relying on him. Seeing Christ crucified in my place because I deserved that death and because I could not live that life. He made a way so that I can rely on him, that I can lay hold of him by faith. And it is he is the one who then sanctifies and makes me holy. That's the invitation of the gospel. Let me pray and then we're going to come and feast on it. Uh, Jesus, feed our hearts on yourself. God, release our hands of the ways in which we strive to prove ourselves, to show ourselves, uh, to somehow not need as much grace. And allow us to trust and believe in you, to celebrate your grace and mercy. In Christ's name, amen.